We welcome your ears. We welcome your ears. We welcome your ears. In George Orwell's 1984, the idea of double-think emerges as an important consequence of the party's massive campaign of large-scale psychological manipulation. Basically, double-think is the ability to hold two contradictory ideas in one's mind at the same time. As the party's mind control techniques break down an individual's capacity for independent thought, it becomes possible for that individual to believe anything that the party tells them, even while possessing information that runs counter to what they are being told. You're listening to The Sill Podcast with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 193 pH factor, talking points, language defaced. Come on in, have a seat. Join the conversation. Well, here we are at the end of 2022. We're doing our final podcast, Podcast TSP 193. And normally this time of year, Harry and I do a retrospective on the year and we go over main events of the year, podcasts we've done and so on. But today we're going to really beckon back because our topic today is going to be about communication and the defacing of language. When I first approached Harry to do this podcast six years ago, exactly six years ago, one of the mandates in setting up the podcast was that we were going to make it basically a conversational style podcast to discuss a variety of subjects. And in so doing, that was how the podcast began. And today, we're really going to be talking about how language has changed or how language is being redirected in our daily lives, including all the technology that have changed the way we communicate to each other. So on that note, good morning, Harry. How are things in Nova Scotia? Morning, Peter. Things are going just fine here. It's going to be a green Christmas so uh, I'm a bit sad, but that's okay. We take it as it comes. Well, it'll definitely be white on our end, the current forecast, and this being December 20th, we just uh, received the forecast for tomorrow, Friday, and into the weekend that we're definitely going to be getting quite a bit of snow and colder temperatures, so it looks like a white Christmas here. Getting into this topic, the title, Language Defaced, will tell you that uh, part of the reason we came up with that title was the defacing has dual meaning. And one of them is that the lack of seeing one another face-to-face with a lot of our modern-day communication. And I know, Harry, that you have some very strong opinions on the current state of communications and language. So please feel free to be blunt, as you often say. Well, I really do feel very strongly that we have gone way off the rails as a species when it comes to communication, language, finding ways of finding shared ground, agreeing on what's real, what is not real, agreeing on the facts and which data is correct. In the last several years of COVID, of course, have really accentuated how divided we've become and how silo-esque we've individually become, where we'd rather turn to Google to get a certain amount of data or an answer to something rather than talking to another human being. Once upon a time, you'd pick Mm. up the phone to wise old Uncle Fred and say, Uncle Fred, talk to me about China. You've been there. What's it like there? And you'd get a sort of a face-to-face response that would be genuine and based on experience. Now we're abstracted from the directness of one-to-one communication face-to-face 
And we'd rather live in a virtual world and consult Uncle Google rather than Uncle Fred. And that's a sad state of affairs. So that's one thing anyway. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about this, are you also making certain references, not only to the way we've communicated in the past, but also we've heard from some great writers and we've watched some great movies on this subject as well, specifically 1984, George Orwell, the double speak reference. That's what was coming to my mind when you were talking right now. Does some of that play into your feelings about the current situation with communication? Oh, yeah. You know, the whole black-white thing, war is peace, news speak, double think. Orwell coined these terms in 1984, and he was kind of prophetic because thinking about the last few years, I keep going back to COVID because these last few years have really brought all this stuff out. Mm. So the vaccine came out, so-called vaccine came out, and people flocked to put it in their arms. And the vaccine was given an emergency use authorization initially. In some respects, I think it's still under that domain, although I think the community variation of the drug has been given official approval. But nonetheless, in conversations with people, I have said the word experimental or joined the word experimental to these mRNA vaccines. And people have said to me, what are you talking about? It's not experimental. They did all this research on the drugs. And I said, well, yeah, but how much research did they do? Well, they did trials over eight months and, and all this stuff. And they had all this technology in advance that they knew about and could work with quickly. And they had to bring it to market real quick. And yes, I said, well, yes. But the fact is that there were no long-term safety trials. The experiment was not completed, so to speak. And typically with drug companies, they are expected to do long-term safety studies before their products are approved for mass distribution. That didn't happen in this case because of the urgency of the situation, and I understand that. But nonetheless, it's still an experimental drug that people are putting in their arms. But people take that word and they just deny the validity of that word in relation to these vaccines. So that's just an example of a kind of obstinacy and uh, a willingness to deny reality in the face of fear or political partisan thinking, that sort of thing. Because we're in these different camps, you're not allowed to think the thoughts that are coming from the other side and consider them. You have to actually just deny the definition of the word that they're using. So this is the kind of thing that's been going on this kind of double think for some time now. So for me, the critical part of what you just described, because there is the other side, and many people would argue that the urgency of the situation caused us to forego many of the standard procedures that would apply in this particular situation, over and above what you just described, which I mainly agree with. It's about the disclosure of information because of the situation we have perhaps missed some steps. There is additional risk involved because we've done this. It's about adding the pieces of information which allow people to think things through and make decisions based on 
having full knowledge or more complete knowledge on things so that they are aware of the risks and not push aside these ideas because they don't really matter because we need to do this and this is more important and so on and so forth. It was almost like an insult on our intelligence, on our ability to process information. Yeah, governments were afraid to be too transparent and to tell the whole truth about what was going on because they feared that if they did that, then the population at large would not be as compliant towards their protocols and mandates as they wanted them to be. Mm -hmm. So it might have come out of a good place in the sense that we can't freak people out in that way or they won't do the right thing and uh, help end this pandemic. So we can't be fully transparent here. And that's a shame. And it is an insult to the citizenry when you do that. There's a quote here I'd like to share with you, if I could, mm -hmm. by a fellow by the name of Neil Postman. And it, it does speak to some of what we're talking about here. He says, everyone is entitled to an opinion, and it is certainly useful to have a few when a pollster shows up. But these are opinions of a quite different order from 18th or 19th century opinions. It is probably more accurate to call them emotions rather than opinions, which would account for the fact that they change from week to week, as the pollsters tell us. What is happening here is that television is altering the meaning of being informed, quote-unquote, by creating a species of information that might properly be called disinformation. Disinformation does not mean false information. It means misleading information misplaced, irrelevant, fragmented, or superficial information, information that creates the illusion of knowing something, but which in fact leads one away from knowing. In saying this, I do not mean to imply that television news deliberately aims to deprive people of a coherent, contextual understanding of their world. I mean to say that when news is packaged as entertainment, that is the inevitable result. And in saying that the television news show entertains but does not inform, I'm saying something far more serious than that we are being deprived of authentic information. I'm saying we are losing our sense of what it means to be well-informed. Ignorance is always correctable, but what shall we do if we take ignorance to be knowledge? Mm-hmm. A couple of things you mentioned there. One of them was the uh, entertainment aspect, which has been a pain in my side for some time about just the way things are always pushed towards the entertainment end of things, including news, the sensationalization of things, things being left out. But I think what you're also talking about is the fundamentals of communication that have atrophied. You talked about verification and understanding and also about, I guess you would call it heart-centered, as you mentioned, listening mm -hmm. instead of just factual, relying more on instincts, which was a normal part of face-to-face -face communication in the past. Yeah, I mean, it's a complicated issue, Peter, in my view, anyway. Once upon a time, people actually allowed for a full thought to emerge when somebody was speaking. It would be considered rude to speak over them or interrupt them. People were taught a certain kind of social etiquette where you were quiet and listened. And when you felt that the individual had finished their thought, then you would speak if you wish. Children were taught don't speak until spoken to, which in some respects is a bit mean <laughs> to kids, but it also taught them to hold their tongue for a period of time until the adult was finished what they were doing, which would be a sign of respect for them. So this heart-to-heart -heart speaking 
is really gone now because we're so quick to jump on the next person before they've even finished their thought that it becomes a jousting match more than an actual authentic human interaction. Wouldn't you think? Yes. What you're basically talking about also on top of what you've just mentioned is the inherent lack of patience that we have created in the society that moves so quickly and is used to everything. The phrase, for example, on demand has become sort of part of our lexicon. Everything is on demand. And the demand in itself sort of implies a lack of time, lack of patience. So we're not accustomed to waiting to start with. And also, I believe that when you remove the personalized face-to-face communication, you also create a certain anonymity and an inability to read the other person's body language, which is a very, very important part of communication. When you talk about the ability to listen to someone, it's much easier to see where things begin and end when you're actually in front of a person and you see their face, their body language, the way they're intonating and so on, their eye movement. You can gauge better when a point is being made and when it begins and when it ends. So there's a lot of these factors. The other thing, too, is that everything has become highly focused. Companies create messaging now that is very specific and purposeful. It's getting people into a particular lane. So we have become accustomed to creating very customized messaging. Despite the fact that there are millions and billions of people, Communication is being focused, laser-focused, on individuals. Right. And part of that whole process, I would call it a kind of chunking process, Mm -hmm. where information has been chunked into small, digestible morsels of food that are disseminated through magazines and newspapers. The world news comes on at whatever hour of the day, and you're listening to it. Then it's over, and you look up at the clock, and you go, That was six minutes. The news is six minutes long. Mm -hmm. That's all it takes to present news from around the world? Six minutes? So clearly, they're not taking news seriously anymore if that's what they're giving us as news. So that's going on. The chunking of information. And so then individually, as we communicate with each other, we expect a short chunk of information. If you speak for more than a minute, the person you're speaking to inwardly is going to take a commercial break or get antsy, want to jump in. But very few people are going to say, just wait, 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 let the person finish, make sure they're done. Or ask them, are you finished, your thought? That would be a beautiful thing if people, as a habit, in a conversation, every time the other person finished what they're saying, before you start your point, you say, Are you finished your thought fully? So you can allow for a fuller interaction and not just my point, your point, my point, your point, the jousting that goes on. One of the things that's really changed as well, short forms and emojis, which have also been kind of, in my opinion, overdone. And part of that too is because it's easy People will also argue that it can express a lot in a single image, but that also means that you no longer have to think of a word or a phrase that you want to express, Oh, sure. that you can simply pick an image and <laughs> pop it down, and away it goes. Yeah. I wanted to say something about the whole emoji thing. 
Yes, in some respects, the emoji can actually help express an emotion that you maybe can't express that easily in writing or whatever. But say somebody sends you at the end of their letter, their email or whatever, they send you a heart emoji. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? Does that mean I love you like a lover? Does that mean I love you like a kindly uncle? Does that mean I have deep affection for you, but it stops at the point of sexuality? Does that mean I love you like a god? What I'm saying is all the nuances to human language flies out the window when you replace all of that with a single image. Because you can take the image and unpack it in a hundred different directions. How do you then know what the person really means when they send that heart emoji in your direction? You just hit on a nerve for me. It's a pet peeve of mine. And one of the reasons I don't use emojis, well, I haven't. I may use them in the future at some point. And I have nothing against people who use them. My personal reason for not using them is because I can't express nuance. And so I stay away from it only because it's not a good measure of who I am. Not because I think that anyone else who does it is wrong in doing it. It's just that it doesn't suit me. Mm -hmm. The whole point of these emojis was to create shortcuts for people in their communication. LOL, these kinds of short forms were to somehow save us the time wasted in typing out, I'm laughing out loud right now, which in some respects is fine. But as you say, the overuse of it has actually... I think, stunted our ability to speak full thoughts in a fulsome way with nuance and sophistication. And maybe it's just the dumbing down of society that has resulted in this, that people would much prefer to throw a heart emoji at someone than to actually try to express their true feelings. And you talked about other things, other innuendos that are suggested in, especially emojis that reflect affection or reflect caring. There's a different level of caring. The caring I have for my granddaughter is very different from the caring I may have for someone I met this afternoon. The nuance is not deciphered from the image. Mm-hmm. You as a writer would understand this. You can use different words to describe essentially the same thing, but each one, even though they're synonyms, you have a very different emotional response yeah. to the word. Yeah, yeah. Very much is different from overwhelming. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunate that our educational system seems to have sort of gotten caught in the trap of postmodernist technological, fast food, social media reality. It's as if teachers and teaching boards have basically caved into the idea that kids are now going to be lost in their computer screens on social media for the rest of their lives and to just go with that. I see that more and more in schools from teachers that I've known and know Mm -hmm. that they just allow for students to be spending hours and hours on social media as part of their studies or part of their workload sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Again, this is where I sit on this particular subject. To me, it's always about the balance. And the balance in this particular case means aligning the old and known with the new and unknown or the new and changing. You accept change. To me, why can't the two work together? So let's talk about text messaging, for example. I like text messaging for its convenience. So if I have to meet you somewhere, I just send a message, say, sure, Harry, eight o'clock is fine. Great. There's no need to really express anything there other than confirming a time and a place. But now, for example, we get into... Peter, I'm at this restaurant and they have some really good food here. 
Now maybe it requires what kind of food? What are you suggesting? And so on. Basically, what I'm saying is it's getting beyond just confirming a time or a place and very basic information. Now there's something to be discussed. So personally, unless there is no other option, and there may be situations where there isn't, I need to call you. I need to talk to you. Stop messaging back and forth because I need to feel your energy. I need to feel how you really feel about that lobster or that fish. So to me, the technology is fantastic when it's in measured use. In other words, appropriate to whatever the situation calls for. Now, I know that that's largely subjective. That's my position on that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the fact is human beings need to communicate in whatever platforms there are, whether it's text or email or social media sites, what have you, we'll use them if they're accessible to us. But there's use and there's misuse. And as you say, text messaging originally might have been intended to be short and sweet and that sort of thing has become long-winded and too involved. Social media reality is very, very weird now. Let me give you another quote I pulled off of a Facebook thread the other day, just so you get a sense for the kind of things going on in social media. Sure. This person says, what is going on? Has the world gone mad? I cannot believe the number of fake emails and stories appearing in my emails and Facebook. There are lost or found puppy stories, and now I'm seeing loads of stories where people claim to be closing down their businesses and are selling off their merchandise, and I suspect that many of these are fake too. Sharing unknown stories is dangerous. I recently received two emails claiming someone had attempted to log into my Facebook account, and I should indicate if it is me or not. I usually check the email from which those messages are coming, and you can usually tell if it's a fake. These two were, and I just deleted without clicking on anything. Why are there so many sleazy hackers out there? I simply cannot trust email or Facebook anymore, or phone calls either for that matter, and I'm reluctant to share anything I see on Facebook. Perhaps it's time to go back to snail mail again. Yeah. There's incredible uh, frustration out there on social media with the amount of What's the word? I mean, really, it's criminality. People hacking, people trying to get your email address or information to be used or sold in one way or the other. Yes, but remember that a lot of this is also very simply a factor of anonymity. The technology allows you to hide. Yeah. The same is applicable to even normal communications with someone you know very well. If you want to get a point across and maybe eliminate certain parts of what would be a normal conversation. When you're with a person face-to-face, -face, you have to deal with things. If there's an issue between you, if there's an emotional problem or an unsolved issue that exists, by using, for example, text or email, you can eliminate that. You can forego the necessity to resolve a particular difference between people. It allows a certain level of expediency, but expediency, again, depending on the situation, because expediency can be a very positive thing, but not necessarily in a situation where there's a problem that requires more discussion or more thought. Mm -hmm. When was the last time in school, when you were in school, or any time when your teacher talked about the art of conversation and how to have a respectful interaction with another human being as a focus of study, of really trying to understand that. Have you ever had that in your schooling? I hadn't. 
No, just like they didn't do a lot of things in school that, that, that dealt with the practical day-to-day issues. For example, I remember in sex education and family education, there was very little of that when we were going to school. I think it, it might still be the case. I don't know because I'm not in it. But we weren't taught those kinds of things. We were always taught with facts, numbers, situations that were largely passed down from institutional thinking in the society that we functioned in. Yeah, Andrew Welch in his book, The Value Crisis, had it really well expressed when he talked about how numbers have kind of destroyed our democracy in a way. When once upon a time we'd have words and language and discussion, now it's what's the bottom line? Cut to the chase. What are the numbers here? Mm -hmm. So the reduction of everything in life to a numerical, quantifiable value is a really destructive force. I agree with Andrew Welch on that front. Everybody should read his books, by the way. They're really, really good. The Value Crisis and Our Second Chance, two really excellent books of his, for sure. And for quick reference, TSP 148, 149, 150 was a trilogy. And at the very beginning, The Value Crisis is TSP 002. The quantifiable aspect that you mentioned, quantification is fine when you're dealing with building when you're moving products, when you're doing very practical, everyday things that we need to agree on a term of measurement. But when you're talking about issues involving emotions, people's feelings, things are not quantifiable because they're not based on that measurement. Mm. They're based on much more complex variables, situational, circumstantial, and so on. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Let me give you a little example of The idea of slowing down that we talked about early on in this podcast and how technology has speeded things up. Before the internet came along in a big way, I met my current wife. And what had happened was I had met her the once and then I wanted to communicate with her again. And I had no information about phone number or anything. So I got an address and uh, wrote a, a letter, typed out a letter and put it in the mail, snail mail. And uh, I waited, and a week later, a letter arrived, which was a response to my letter, thanking me and going into details about her life, et cetera, et cetera. And then I wrote a letter and sent it back to her. Mm. And a week later, I got another letter from her. We went back and forth week to week, writing these letters for three full months Mm -hmm. before we actually sat down physically a second time. The point I'm making is those three months allowed us individually and together to share some of our deepest feelings and some of our deepest nuanced feelings in regards to ourselves, the world, and to each other. So we essentially fell in love fully through the communication of writing back and forth over those three months and the ability to express a complete thought in a letter without being interrupted is an incredible thing. Everyone should do it now and then. Write a full-fledged letter to somebody you want to communicate with. Don't do email. Don't do text. Write a letter. Drop it in the mailbox and see what happens. I agree with that. In fact, I had a firsthand experience. As a young man, I had issues with my own anger and so on. And when I would get into situations where I felt that I wanted to respond violently, I learned that it helped me if I would not react at the moment and I would go home or go somewhere and I'd actually take a pen to paper 
And I would write out what I was feeling, why I was upset, what was that trigger. And the process of writing that on a piece of paper, apart from having great stuff to read years later, which I never showed anyone else but kept to myself in a box, that process gave me time. It got rid of a lot of that anger and made me reevaluate the situation I was in. The writing allowed me to look at and say, there are things that I can improve. I could have done this differently. Yeah, I mean, diary writing, journal writing, it's a kind of a self-to-self communication because often diaries were not written necessarily to be read by anyone but the person who wrote it. It is a kind of self-to-self communication, allowing you to explore your own thoughts, your own feelings without any repercussions, without anybody having to respond to you and that sort of thing. Many people do it these days. They journal. And it's a really good way of communicating and formulating your thoughts and feelings about the world without any sort of danger of repercussion. A lot of the negativity that exists towards technology is because we've given up parts of ourselves to the technology. There's no reason why you can't still think for yourself, write, do these other things. The difference is now, maybe I have a computer that I can use a keyboard and write instead of a pen and paper. Instead of throwing six pieces of paper into the wastebasket, I can just backspace or copy paste. Even though it sounds very clinical, it does have its place if you've balanced it with everything else. Well, here's the thing, Peter. We've been given the ability to reach out to many more people than we would have 50 years ago in the course of our lives. But the thing about human nature is the bigger the audience we think we're talking to, the more simplified the message. And that's what I think people start doing is they start to dumb down the message when they think they're talking to hundreds of thousands of people because there's too many different types of people in that group. You can't speak to one group and then ignore another part of that population. So you kind of dumb it down and speak in a language that everyone can understand in a very simple and direct way. And so again, what happens is that nuance is sacrificed for expedient, direct communication. So to find the balance there is difficult when the very platform you're engaged with tends to encourage you to not be long-winded, to not go into details and tangents because you think you're going to lose the attention span of your listener. Take, for example, a technological application called Twitter. Okay. You can't go on and on and on and write 15, 20, 30 paragraphs on Twitter. First of all, I think you can't do it. There's a limit to how many letters or words that you can use. So the technology itself is limiting what you can and can communicate or how much of it you can communicate. So there are some definite sort of blocks to what you just said in many of the platforms that people use through which they communicate. However, again, it's up to you. You know that you have Twitter as one vehicle, but there are many other vehicles. You can email, you can create websites. There are many things that you can do. So what I'm saying is the technology offers you many options. If you confine yourself to Twitter, then yes, you're absolutely right. You are limited because that platform limits you. Yeah. Sorry, I would argue though, Peter, that all of these technologies, all of these communication vehicles limit what you can and can't say and how much you can say of what you want to express. 
they are not open-ended where, okay, well, Twitter, I can only say this, but if I just go over to Facebook, I could say a lot more. Well, maybe, but I think many of these platforms really limit, if not directly, but by implication, how you are allowed to communicate on it. People may just block you if you're too long-winded or whatever. So I think you're very much in some ways an apologist for technology used in the right way and the balance of it, et cetera. And I see your point there. I just feel that there's something implicit to technology and technological thinking, which in itself compresses the human thought form into a tighter and tighter box just by its nature. Not that there's malintent here, but just by its nature, I think technology does that. Logistically speaking, I agree with you 100%. I guess where I go to is I'm using myself as an example. The limits are there, no question. It has changed the way we do things. But still, ultimately, as long as you have a thinking brain, you still have other options that you may or not be considering simply because you're allowing the technology to aggravate or to intimidate you. Even if those limits are there to some extent, many of the limits that we have are self-imposed. That's my feeling. Right. And so that's a whole other discussion. But you said as long as you have a thinking brain, you can choose. That is the real issue, is what's happened to our thinking brain. Yep. And what's happened to our thinking brain has everything to do with how we communicate now in the world and how we connect to technology and use it or misuse it or whatever. That thinking brain has changed. It's no longer a deeply thinking brain anymore. Not to say that every human being who's ever lived in history has had a deeply thinking brain, but I think that capacity has really been atrophied along with communication not just because of technology, but just because of the evolution of our politics and our society at large and where it's taken us, we have that challenge to overcome, to re-kind of occupy our own thinking brains, if I can put it that way. And you use the word atrophy, a word that I really love. The word inherently means shrinkage. So shrinkage, not just with communication, but with anything. If you don't use it or you don't exercise your ability to use something, it diminishes over time. I still can do things that I've always done, and I use the technology to make things easier for me to get to or simplify things, but that's because my attitude is one of, I will only engage and use it as long as it's beneficial to me and that I still have the ability to choose differently when I wish to. My concern is more about the millions and millions of people who've given up their minds and souls to these devices. Mm. Yeah. And see this as their only way of getting through life, which to me is the real problem. And also, too, Peter, you're talking of your own personal experiences with technology and with your choices, etc. When you look at the masses, the mass consciousness out there, then you really see the effects of the saturation of data and information and technology in society. That's when the landscape of our miscommunication, disinformation, whatever you want to call it, really starts to show itself, which here you know, really emerged, as we've said before, in the last few years, especially during COVID. So we've got to find a way to encourage each other to bring this podcast to a kind of close, find a way to encourage each other to think again, to use our thinking brains, to be respectful with each other, to find that common ground and stop speaking out of our emotional reactive side and more out of our thoughtful, considered side. 
I think we need to move in that direction. Yes, I agree. And I also, talking in this and many other podcasts that we've done, that you have more choice than you think you have if you think things through and don't always respond or immediately buy into everything that you're being sold. Yes, indeed. So yes, communication, this is what this podcast is all about. And you are critical to this podcast. You may not realize it. And we don't have hundreds of thousands or millions of listeners, obviously, but we have enough out there that we value your input. Your communication to us is really important. Even if you take three seconds to send us a note saying, fabulous podcast, this last one, or whatever it is, we're thrilled to hear your communication and to talk with you about it. Or not fabulous, and why didn't you talk about this, or why don't you bring this up, or maybe you can go into this subject. And I will also add, as we close here, that we have had some responses, especially in recent months, and it's part of the reason why we're continuing. And so on that note, we're closing off the year, and we're wishing everyone, because this goes up on January 1st, 2023, we're going to wish everyone a wonderful, happy, and fulfilling new year. Take care, Harry. You too, Peter. Ciao. Ciao. The Sill Podcast is a Connecting Dots Media production, available at thesillpodcast.com. Thank you for your donation to The Sill Podcast.